You're listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast, where we interview entrepreneurs who have sold their companies and the advisors that help them. We elicit expert advice from exit planners, attorneys, merger and acquisition experts, accountants, business appraisers, and financial advisors, all with a goal of educating you about the sales process. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started a sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. And now, here's your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition. Rosenfarb for Exit Strategy Simplified, and with us today, a great guest, John A. Warwick, a recovering tax attorney, the founder of Purposeful Planning Institute. John A. consults with families of wealth and families in business through his consulting practice, Family Wealth Transitions and Solutions. Really glad to have you with us today, John, and, you know, let's jump right into it. I want to know, you know, based on your experience, what three things can any owner start doing right now to prepare for an exit? Well, Noah, thank you. It's a it's really a privilege to be with you this morning. I, I think the three things that I would suggest that an owner start doing yesterday um, to prepare for their exit from the business would be first find the new owner, and um, I'll mention that that's not what people are thinking when they hear that. I think. I would suggest finding what I call a value maximization consultant. And the third would be creating what I call a team of affinity. So maybe describe a little bit of each of those, because I think most people find it. It's like, should I, where do I find them? How do I start looking? So why don't you give them some advice? The, the reality is the new owner that I'm speaking of is the owner himself or herself. You need to find the new owner. That is, what what is it what is going to excite you and get you up every morning with the same level of energy and excitement that you had when you started your business when you were in the the kind of most productive years of that business what is there ahead of you that will give you that same excitement and energy because if you don't find that new owner you're going to be filled with what i call seller's remorse yeah. And then the other interesting thing that you recommend is, is finding a value maximizer. Is that someone that you'd like to have on your team full-time? Is that a consultant? How, how often do you see that expressing itself with Well, I, I think that this, uh, this can – it's most often um, done through the consulting arrangement. But this is an individual. It could actually be, um, depending on the size of the business, it could be um, a board of directors of outside um, experts that sit on your board. But the idea here is to really get strategic advice around how you're going to maximize the value of the business. Um, I've seen so many clients just make up their mind, snap, I'm going to sell the business and go immediately to a business broker or an investment banker without any thought uh, towards how can we really make this business more valuable um, to a potential buyer. 
so that that is a this really is starting early and probably um, five or ten years before someone really wants to seriously pursue an exit planning strategy, I think they need to be dealing with this value maximizer, as you called it. Great. And and then the the third piece you mentioned was about finding a team to collaborate with, and I know that a team of affinity is this collaborative team description that I like. I I think that um, it's very important that every member of your team of advisors have an affinity for where you're going, and that. Um, they are bringing their best skills um, and advice to the table and that they will work well and complement each other. And if you don't have that level of affinity for your purposes and your interests and uh, people who will collaborate well with each other, I don't think you're going to get the maximum benefit from the advisory team. So I really do feel there's tremendous power in collaboration, and you've got to find the right collaborative advisors. And if you don't have, if you have someone who isn't a good collaborator, you have to ask yourself, should this individual really be part of my team going forward? One of the ways I see that manifest in the early stages uh, is when talking about tax and estate planning for clients that are contemplating a transition, and you need to integrate your personal financial plan with your business plan and your estate tax attorney and your accountant. So tell me a little bit from your experience, you know, where do you see the best pre-sale tax and estate planning opportunities arise, and how would clients go about finding out that information and implementing? those suggestions? Well, I think that's a great question, Noah, and um, it's important for all those people listening to um, our conversation this morning to realize that um, there are opportunities to really minimize the tax consequences as well as to really nicely um, and strategically set up um, estate planning um, opportunities. So this exit planning field is one that's ripe for the type of advice you're suggesting clients should be looking to. And I just throw two, the, the two techniques that I most commonly discuss with clients that are in this stage of the life of a business would be a grant or its uh, cousin, a sale to an intentionally defective grantor trust, what I call an I dig it, um, or the charitable remainder trust. The charitable remainder trust is fallen in popularity. We don't see much of it today because of the incredibly low interest rate environment, but still in the right situation with a client who um, has um, a strong, strong philanthropic um, mission or purpose in mind, Charitable Remainder Trust or its cousin, the the Family Foundation should not be uh, overlooked. Maybe you could give us a brief description of uh, Grant or Retained Annuity Trust, the grant that you referred to? 
Well, the grant, uh, the easiest way to describe a grant is what the grant is going to do is uh, create uh, a strategy that allows future growth and appreciation in the business interest that's transferred to the grant to escape um, federal transfer taxation. You, you get back in what we call a zeroed out grant, you zero out the gift so that what you put into the grant, you get back over the term of the grant with um, a minimum uh, return that is equal to what the discount rate is the IRS uses for estate and gift tax planning purposes. Now that rate's incredibly low right now um, in the mid 1% range. And so today, effectively, a grant is almost interest-free. This is an incredible planning strategy and means that if you're going to unleash, because um, let's say that the interest is in the business is held through either stock or a membership interest in an LLC, you're going to transfer that stock or LLC interest, um, some percentage of your ownership to this grant. You'll get back today's value, but today's value is suppressed. It's depressed by two discounts that we see in the the uh, business valuation world. One is a discount for lack of marketability, and the other is a discount for lack of control or a minority interest discount. Those two interests with an operating business um, could very easily, conservatively, be in a 35 to 40 percent discount. You're going to unlock that discount when you uh, put this sale uh, in motion and cause it to happen. And that 35 to 40 percent is almost assured to pass without gift tax um, to your heirs. Uh, so that's an overview of the grant structure. Um, I would caution people that I really feel um, I've, I've seen a lot of um, seller's remorse about uh, not the grant itself, but about the trust that the grant became after the grant term, which is usually two years. Sometimes it might be set up for three years or five years, but it's most likely to be um, two years. That at the end of that two-year term, there's a trust, and whatever value has been unlocked through the liquidity event is left in that trust. And I've had a lot of remorse over that trust was too rigid or that trust uh, didn't contemplate all of the things that I would like a trust. So this is one area that I think our purposeful planning concepts, Noah, are of extreme interest and value. And um, the exercise that we use at the Purposeful Planning Institute that we call Why a Trust is almost an absolute must, I think, for any business owner who's contemplating a grant. And and I think any business owner that's considering a trust uh, probably has some of those same concerns about 
how is this money going to pass and what will it be used for? And I think the framework that you've designed is real helpful. And maybe we'll be able to get into that a little bit later in the call because uh, it's, it's real valuable for business owners to start contemplating. Thank you, Noah. So let's move on to a, a different area and maybe your experience of how people get prepared emotionally and financially to go from earning money to now spending money, you know, through this transition, oftentimes people have great cash flow and their wealth is tied up in a small business, medium-sized business, large business. And then all of a sudden they convert that to liquidity through some transaction and they've got to start utilizing their wealth. And I think it's it's an emotionally challenging process for people. So what are the ways you would encourage owners to get prepared? It, it it really is, and Noah, I'd like to um, suggest here that um, well, l- let me just share what I've done to become a better consultant in this area. I was privileged about a year and a half ago to um, meet a gentleman by the name of Jack Beauregard in Boston, who is the founder of the Successful Transition Planning Institute. And through STPI, I became certified as a successful transition planning consultant. Um, The two things that I have learned from working with Jack Beauregard and Paul Cronin, the two owners of that institute, is the value of what's called the Owner Clarification Report. This is an online assessment tool. It takes about 45 minutes for the owner to do, and you then get about a 20-page report that really is a roadmap to help the owner get clarity around um, what they need to do to find that new owner and to be prepared emotionally for this transition. Um, so that's, um, you know, the cost of the report itself is um, not that uh, expensive. The um, consulting work, the strategic work that can be done uh, guided by the roadmap that that clarification report um, is invaluable. It's going to be expensive, um, but I think it's well worth the investment. And so I would, in uh, that, that from my experience, I've not found anything better to prepare an owner for the emotional transition and the, the new world that he's, he or she is stepping into when they move from being an entrepreneur and an executive business owner to this new world of family wealth um, that they'll find themselves in than this process that the Successful Transition Planning Institute has shared with their consultants. And and kind of in line with that, you know, some of the strategies you talked about for the pre-sale estate planning opportunities, do you find clients are open to minimizing their taxes post-transition, and, and what do you find are the most useful tools there? Yeah, I think, um, truthfully, STPI, its strength is in the decision to sell, um, not there are great sources, and, and no, I think you're one of them, frankly. Um, they're great sources for the value maximization advice. Um, 
SPPI is not necessarily going to um, add anything to that, but it's going to add tremendous clarity around the transition itself, how to prepare for it, as you said, emotionally. And um, there are three kind of uh, modules to the process that STPI has. One is called LIVE, which is the modules that really help you get a vision around um, what that new owner you is going to be doing a year, five, 15 years from now. There's Decide, which are the modules for the owner who's really trying to decide how do I sell and, in a sense, when do I sell. And then there's Thrive, which is also um, tied into the, you know, how are we going to really get the maximum value, not out of just the sale, but out of what I do with the the capital that I've harvested through the liquidity event. Well, let's move on to a little bit of a different topic in maintaining family harmony. And maybe, you know, based on your experience, you could describe some of the most important things families can do to maintain their family harmony after a transition. Well, I think um, in terms of strategies that clients use to minimize um, their taxes, um, <laughs> this may uh, th- this is very simple. But where do you live? Um, you know, many business owners, um, because of the location of their business, are tied to um, a jurisdiction that may have what they might consider an oppressive state income tax rate. Federal rates are going to follow us wherever we live. But one of the things that I see happen extremely often with the sale of the business is a relocation of income tax situs for the owner to a jurisdiction. Typically, it's a um, tax-favored jurisdiction with a warmer climate than where um, I've lived while I was building my business. Um, so that's that's certainly a huge saver in terms of either avoiding or minimizing state income tax. Um, and then beyond that, I think the strategies are – you know, there's going to be a combination of strategies that are going to be employed here, but broadly we could speak about, um, you know, the opportunities with tax-exempt investments, um, maximizing exposure to capital gains rather than ordinary income, and under our current tax law, but this, of course, is something that's very much in question, is the tax favorability of dividend income. So um, those are very broad descriptions of strategies, um, but there's a lot of opportunities here for clients to minimize the tax bite um, after the sale of the business. So let's move on to a different topic about maintaining family harmony. And and maybe you could share with the listeners some of the most important things that they can do with their family to try and maintain harmony. Why? I really want to say how much I appreciate the the thoughtfulness of this question. I I think that family too often gets 
to be uh, something that's in the wake of the sale, the liquidity event, uh, rather than something that's in the forefront. So I did, as I contemplated this question, though, I came up with a few suggestions here. It's hard to say whether these are the most important things because there's lots of opportunities for family leadership that will contribute significantly to enhancing family harmony. But the first thing I would say is um, don't make the mistake of starting to do this work now. If anybody's listening to this call that still has children at home, make sure that you're building relationships with those children um, while they're kids and teenagers. And I've had a lot of sad experiences with business owners who turn 55 and decide to sell the business and then say, hey, kids, come join me. I'm now going to be really excited about how we're going to make the world a better place with our family foundation. And I want the three of you to join me in this quest. And I've had more than one occasion where that business owner who's enjoyed the harvesting of success through a liquidity event experienced huge disappointment because he cannot get his children to join with him. And I've helped them to understand that too often the children are caught in a pattern that he, the owner, initiated when they were very young. And it was they had another sibling that they competed with for his attention and his time. And that other sibling was called the business. And now that he sold the business, they see his new family foundation as the sibling that they're competing with. And they're not, as adults, interested in playing that game. So um, I do think it's very important that we start early. But there are many things that you can do. Um, if, if Do not give up hope here. If you haven't had the greatest relationship with your children, don't expect this to change overnight. This is, um, you're not going to be able to be as nimble about causing a new direction in your relationship with your children like you would be, um, you know, turning an F-15. This is more like a, a 747. It's going to be slow and deliberate. Uh, you'll get there but it's going to take you a lot longer to turn, make that turn than, you know, what you could do if you were in an F-15. But here's three things, Noah, that I think are very important. Onboarding. That is what I mean by onboarding is how do we bring the new daughter-in-law, son-in-law, or significant other into our family circle? If you do inboarding well, that goes a long ways to creating the type of family harmony and family culture that you want. And I think there's an art to onboarding, and you need to be careful. It's a very sensitive area because if you don't do this right, there are wounds inflicted that take years and years to heal and overcome. The second thing that I think is very important is to really work on shared values and shared mission as a family. 
and this leads naturally to um, family meetings and quality family experiences. I think that um, uh, a formula for success in terms of building relationships, building family culture, are family meetings and what I call quality family experiences. Those can be trips together. They can be Sunday dinners where the family gathers if you're blessed to be in a geographic proximity to each other. It's um, it's a combination of the communication and the, the structure of family meetings with these quality family experiences. Those are great ideas. Um, in kind of keeping with that theme, you know, you mentioned that some owners fail to, you know, encourage their children to see their the sibling of the business as it either an equal sibling or a sibling they should love. So, when do you think these owners should be talking about their exit plans with their family? Sooner rather than later. Um, I, I think that it is one of the most common mistakes that business owners make, um, the veiled secrecy around my plans for the business. And if you do not have these conversations, um, there is a huge opportunity for dis- disappointment because um, the children may have had expectations that you were totally unaware of. So this is a sensitive topic. It's an extremely important topic. Even discussing this, not just with the children, but with spouse. Um, you know, I, I. This is sometimes difficult for owners to do. They may need some help. They. This is where a, a consultant, of, a communications facilitator. Uh, or a consultant with great communication skills and experience can be of uh, great help in helping with these difficult conversations, but they're absolutely crucial, and they need to happen sooner rather than later. In, in conjunction with that, you know, a lot of families that I talk to are concerned that this new liquidity that might come into the, the owner's lap can become a negative asset, you know, that it it might harm their children, their children's expectations, their children's values. So what advice do you have for families that share this concern and maybe in how owners might connect that with discussing their exit plan with their family? Well, the first the first wisdom I would offer here is money isn't a negative thing. Um, it's our relationship with money in our attitude towards money, which can be problematic. Um, I was struck, um, I I did watch um, a great deal of the Republican National Convention last night, and um, there was a a video um, that was shown that exposed the family side of Mitt Romney. Um, This is a pretty incredible success story. Whether you agree with Governor Romney's politics uh, and his political philosophy or his plans for the country, 
I think the story is rather inspiring that you can have the level of business success that he had and to create a family as healthy as his family is. And it was pretty obvious from watching that video and then seeing on the stage the children and the grandchildren. This is a very successful uh, this is a poster family that every business owner in America could learn from and model after what they've done. And um, and I think what I saw uh, from very early in his days at Bain Capital when he was putting extremely long hours in, there was a commitment for him to try to be there for dinners with the family and for activities at night with the kids. So while his wife had the primary responsibility, he was still involved. It is a team effort. It takes both a husband and a wife. Um, It's not to say that single parents can't have tremendous influence on their children, but it really is, it starts in the roots of the relationships, and then it Uh, really boils down to sharing the values that are the core values that are ingredients for success and teaching those to our children at early ages. There were some stories, very touching stories last night of him, uh, as one person put it, tagging along his children with him as he was engaged in these acts of service that were really incredibly inspiring. He was taking his kids with him. So, Noah, I I would just say um, I know it's troublesome. You worry that the money is going to disincent your kids. Um, I don't think that while, while it's a good worry to have, you should not lose hope. And there are ways in which you can really try to help your family develop healthy attitudes towards values and to um, model and teach the values that will lead them to be successful in their relationships with wealth. Yeah, great advice. So one of the other areas that I think is important for owners to consider in sharing their family values and developing, uh, as you described earlier, you know, a shared vision and a shared mission is through the use of family meetings and in identifying what type of family governance structure should be put in place. So maybe let's start off with different family governance structures and how families should go about choosing something that might fit for their family. Well, uh, I'm a little bit, um, I have a little bit of a caution here that I think the governance structure for families really needs to reflect the family itself. But I will speak to a couple of things that I think are fundamentally important. Beyond this, um, the form that you choose um, will be much more guided by the circumstances of your family, and you shouldn't necessarily I mean, while I said we could, you know, learn something from the Romneys, I'm not going to suggest that the Romney uh, patterns are going to be what will be most successful for every family. But here's a couple of things that I think are very important. Um, If you look at 
governance structures. I see two general patterns, Noah, that um, you could uh, describe these governance structures. One is top-down, very generational, hierarchical in orientation with the senior generation family members up here at the top and the younger generations down below. Um, this is a common pattern. However, it's not a pattern that um, works well in terms of empowering and preparing the next generations of your family for the transition of the wealth and the responsibility um, that comes with that wealth. So I prefer those models that are what are based on what I call the empowered from within. Um, I prefer models that really um, create appropriate opportunities, and over time, this will um, develop, mature as the skills, capacities, um, and the time and interest of the children and grandchildren permit. But very much, I'm very much an advocate of a lead from behind, and I caution uh, my clients that the words that we use um, are, are important here. Too many business owners refer to their kids as kids and fail to realize these are my former children. They're now adults. They're former children. And just using the descriptor former children when you're talking about your children um, validates their role as adults. Beyond that, um, I've been involved, just finished an 18-month uh, consulting project with a Fortune 500 family. Uh, we did a marvelous job of bringing all three generations of that family together to envision a governance structure that will work for them in the next three to five years and that will allow eventually the emergence of the third generation in a very meaningful way. So, you know, that structure involved, in addition to family council, uh, an executive committee, and then it involved serious committees and what we call the G3 Council, a council devoted to the needs and the interests of the third generation and a support system within that G3 Council of mentoring the younger G3s as they approach and enter the family governance. So um, it's a topic that we could spend a lot more time, um, but I do think this concept of forget about using the word kids, respect them and treat them and call them your former children, and then look for governance structures that are going to be empowered from within rather than top down. And, and in conjunction with that, are, are you seeing families run family meetings and having those experiences kind of simultaneously with developing their family governance structure? Maybe you could describe how a family would go about having a gathering that might be different than the way it used to be. 
Well, it's it's very interesting. This project that I just was referencing, we use the fan, that family meets three times a year. Um, the family meetings usually consist of um, a half day of what I call the quality family experience. Um, that could be a recreational experience. Um, they they may come together for uh, golfing, uh, boating, uh, something fun. And then the next day is a serious day of business, usually somewhere in the neighborhood of six hours. Um, it may have committee meetings that are taking place in between these meetings. But um, yes, Noah, the answer is, is that um, you can use the family meeting to create the family council. And then from that, as you um, get the family involved in the family council, it may be that if the family is large enough and the wealth is sufficiently great that you need more structure than just the family council. Um, you may adopt a formal or an informal committee structure that runs underneath that family council. Um, but in terms of how you kind of get started with this, I, I go back, people will say this is, um, you know, too simplistic, but I do think this starts with having very meaningful conversations over dinner uh, before the kids leave the nest. Uh, but beyond that, if you don't have a habit or a pattern of family meetings uh, with some structure, I would suggest um, there aren't a lot of books that are written about this. I think this is an area where a consultant who has experience in facilitating these family meetings and working with someone who wants to really invest in their family governance could be helpful. And um, I would say that sometimes there are issues that need to be dealt with in terms of family dynamics before you can really get to successful family meetings. And I might just put a plug in here for the work of Dr. Dean Fowler. Um, there is another uh, assessment tool that's called a Family Wealth Comprehensive Roadmap or a Family Business Comprehensive Roadmap. It's a 306 uh, online 68 questions that delve into 12 critical factors for success in the transition of a business or the transition of wealth. It's a tool that I used with the consulting project that I just was describing. It was immensely helpful because it helped us see that this family, largely because of a concerted effort over the last 25 years, was in a great position to be able to move to a very elaborate family governance uh, structure. But other families may, through this uh, comprehensive roadmap, see that we've got to spend some time working on just basic communication before we even get to the family meeting stage. So don't run too fast. Don't think that the family meeting is going to be a panacea. I think this is where a very um, holistic assessment like Dr. Fowler's could be of extreme value to a family that wants to start this journey. I think all of the advice that you're giving is designed to help 
owners that are thoughtful and proactive, and their objective is to make sure that their legacy is long-lasting and positive. And in line with that thinking and, you know, making sure that people leave a, a, a memorable legacy, what suggestions would you have, aside from the family meetings, aside from the family governance and the things we've discussed already, are there any other suggestions that you would recommend the owners start thinking about or implementing? Well, I wish I had my book finished, Noah. Um, I'm working on a book that describes the seven keys of purposeful gifts and trust because I think that really is a um, – it really is a – powerful recipe for how someone can go about creating this sustainable and positive legacy that you're referencing. But let me give you an example um, of a chapter that I'm working on right now in the book. And this is revolutionary. It traces back to George Washington. George Washington hand wrote his will. 30 pages of handwritten uh, directions, and um, I'm going to share with you and our listeners um, about 50 words from George Washington's will. He said, I give to each of my nephews one of my swords, each to choose in the order in which they are named, and then he had the five names of the nephews. And to hold this sword with the following solemn injunction, that they will never raise it except in the case of self-defense or in defense of the republic and its liberties. And in the latter case, that they would prefer falling with their sword, with this sword in their hands to the relinquishment thereof. Now, what George Washington did in approximately 50, 60 words is he took a metal object, a sword, and he somehow imbued that sword with purpose and meaning. Four of those five swords today are at Mount Vernon. Those four swords stayed in the Washington nephew's bloodlines for six and seven generations before those swords were transferred to Mount Vernon to be held by the Martha Washington Foundation and exhibited. The fifth sword, there's an interesting story about how it got lost. It was sold in the uh, insolvent estate of a young grandson who died with a widow and two young children. The sword was the most valuable asset and had to be sold. But the other four swords were treasured um, heirlooms that represented Washington's values. And I, I think the Washington story is a powerful one to help us understand that it isn't just about talking about our values that will create a lasting um, legacy, but there is a magic, an alchemy, so to speak, around how we can capture our purpose, our our deepest meaning for the gifts that we want to create and to, uh, through the written word or the recorded word, preserve the purpose and meaning of these gifts in a very powerful way. That's one of the keys, one of the seven keys, uh, the key of meaning and uh, purpose. And I think 
these are these are these are ways in which um, clients who are interested in discovering what are what's the formula or the recipe for a long-lasting and positive legacy. I can't suggest anything better than the seven keys of purposeful trust and gifts, and the kind of supporting what I call six paradigms of purposeful planning. Great. Well, I know we're almost running out of time, John, so maybe before we go, you could share a story with our listeners about an owner that had the courage and vision to make difficult decisions because they knew it was going to be best for them in the long run. I think we want to encourage all of our listeners to take action and maybe through the sharing of another story, they could see value. I, I appreciate this invitation, and I thought uh, about what I would share here. And, and the best story that came to mind, I think, is I had a client that was contemplating a huge liquidity event. He had um, built a business from scratch. Uh, in less than 20 years, this business had gone from zero to uh, a value in the neighborhood of $250 million. And in the earliest days of the business, at the advice of his tax attorneys, he had placed 60% of the uh, business in three trusts, 20% each, a trust for each of his children. And he had never told the kids about this. In fact, um, when the children, he would call the children to come over to his home just before taxes were due, and he would have them sign, put a paper over the top, he'd have them sign the tax returns. Um, and so these kids were in their uh, mid to mid 20s to early 30s when this event happened, but it was the marriage, prospective marriage of the oldest child that led to this. And we had a conversation with the client, and he wanted a prenuptial agreement. And he um, asked me to prepare a prenuptial for his son and meet with his son. And as I did that, one of the things that I had to do was um, there's a disclosure required for prenups, uh, financial exhibits, and we had to disclose this. So I took the prenup out to a business lunch with the client's son, and I handed him the prenup, and we were going through it. And um, he kind of started thumbing ahead, and he got to the exhibits, and he interrupted me in mid-sentence as I was explaining uh, one of the key provisions to say, Mr. Warnick, there's something terribly wrong. And I said, what's wrong? He said, you've given me my father's financial statement. And I, um, I was worried because this was a case where the father and son shared the name, and it's quite possible that we had done that. I had not assembled the financial um, statement uh, I had left that to the legal assistant to do, and so I quickly pulled it back and looked and looked at it, and there was a big um, sigh of relief on my part because it was indeed the correct financial statement, and I handed it back to him, and I said, no, that is your financial statement, and his mouth dropped, and he asked this question. He says, where is it? 
you know this this um, significant balance sheet that showed a personal net worth um, in the eight digits um, where was it and that's when I explained to him that when he was really uh, just a teenager his father had made a gift and created a trust and this wealth was in this trust he had he knew nothing about the trust knew nothing about the fact that he was worth uh, you know he was a multimillionaire at his young age and um, I reported back to the client the experience, and this is where his courage came in. He realized that he had really done a disservice to his children, and he didn't want to repeat that experience with the other kids. He realized that he needed to begin uh, pulling the curtain back, introducing them to the world that he had created for them, and he needed to prepare them for that world. And that led to a marvelous five-year experience of three family meetings a year uh, working around that. We created a marvelous team of affinity that helped him with that project. And I'm happy to report today that he would probably say the commitment that he made to that process is the best decision that he ever had the courage to make. And it's paid huge dividends for him and his family. That's great. Well, I appreciate you sharing it and sharing your time today. John A. Warwick, the uh, leader of Family Wealth Transitions and Solutions and the founder of Purposeful Planning Institute. John, uh, if our uh, listeners wanted to get in touch with you, what's the best way to reach you? I think it'd be through our website, and uh, that's www.purposefulplanninginstitute.com. And... um, our phone number is 303-256-6300. Great. Thanks again for joining us today. Uh, and to our listeners, if you have any questions for John A., I'm sure he'd welcome your call. Everybody take care. This is Noah Rosenfarb for Exit Strategy Simplified. I hope to have you listen to us again soon. Thanks for listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started the sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. If you have any questions about today's podcast, you can contact your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition at 855-540-0400. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us your feedback. Until next time, this is the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast.